Trevilian Next is a division of Trevilian, a financial services specialist search and talent advisory firm. Since inception, the Trevilian team has dedicated itself to enhancing the return on investment of a company's most important resource, its people. Welcome, everyone. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. I'm very excited about today's guest, and I know our viewers are too. I'm Brian Love, your co-moderator for today and head of banking and fintech at Trevilian, a boutique executive recruitment firm serving the financial services space since 1998. Uh, super excited. This is our 25th anniversary this year that we are celebrating. So my division specifically covers community banks like South State around the country, assisting with succession planning and executive search for boards, executives, and senior leadership teams. Please connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, and visit www.trevilliangroup.com. Sign up for our mailing list and learn about our bank practice and current search engagements. So now on to our guest and our program for today. Along with my co-moderator, Joe Fennick, We've hosted several interview series over the past few years at Trevilian on topics of interest. Among those has been a series with individuals that are best described as industry luminaries, people that are widely respected throughout the industry due to their achievements and the approach they've employed along the way. Joining us today is someone who very much fits that characterization. John Corbett is CEO of South State Corporation, a Florida-based Southeast Regional Bank with 44 billion in total assets. John, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. You bet. And with that being said, I'll introduce my co-moderator, Joe Fennick. Hi, Joe. Hey, Brian. Thanks very much. Good to see you. Um, before we uh, get started, just wanted to take uh, a quick minute to expand a bit on, on some of the comments that Brian uh, made. So as a, a sell-side research analyst for 20 plus years, you know, one of my absolute favorite aspects of the job was to cover and, and, and have the opportunity from a front row seat to sort of chronicle the stories of companies like South State Bank uh, and formerly under John's leadership, Center State Bank. And one of my first assignments as a, as a lead analyst um, at the firm I was working for was to follow the Florida-based banks. This was well before the 08 real estate crisis where Florida was right in the eye of the storm. And that's when I first met John and the team at Center State Bank, which at the time was a small community bank operating uh, in Central Florida. So I don't want to preempt the entire story here, but just wanted to say that, you know, to watch John and the team from that starting point, um, not only survive, but grow and thrive through the 08 crisis in Florida and then eventually grow beyond the borders of Florida uh, to become the Southeast Regional Bank um, that it is today has really been uh, something to behold. So John, uh, it's it's great to see you again, and thanks so much for agreeing to do this. It's great to see you, Joe. And you think back, gosh, 15, 20 years, however long we've known each other, and uh, we're, we're we're all getting older. And I just became a grandfather, so we're, we're on the other side of our careers in life. But but you know, um, we've kind of grown up in this industry together. And I think back when you were an analyst for us, Joe, I think we had six, seven, eight analysts covering us. And, and you you were different, okay? You weren't the first analyst to pump out the report after the earnings call. You were typically towards the end. But having said that, you told our story better than anyone. And, and I felt like, and maybe that's why you're doing this series, you got into the people behind the business and what the storyline was. The second thing I remember is, is you've given us great advice over the years. 
Uh, one specifically coming out of the great financial crisis, I remember being at my kitchen table at, in the evening. It was six, seven o'clock at night, and you calling and said, "John, I've got a piece of advice for you." And you, 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 you walked us through the advice to unwind all of the lost share agreements that we had with the FDIC. I don't even know if you remember this or not. Uh, but I remember sitting at the dining room table because it was going to be a big loss on the financial statement, but it was going to really propel our earnings. And I had to talk the board through that. And we did that. And that was that was huge. It really uh, shot us forward. And Brian, I know we've got a history together uh, with our company and the recruiting you've done for us in the risk area and the accounting area. So it's good to see you guys, both of you. I uh, really appreciate that. Really appreciate that, John. Um, and, you know, recall to, you know, the road shows and the airports. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you, you, took us to, and everything. you took us to a lot of the small towns. Everybody else went to New York City and <laughs> Boston. We, we went to a lot of small towns to see a lot of investors. We did. Good, good times. Um, but maybe to start, John, before we kind of dig into specific aspects of the stories, there's a lot of stuff we want to ask you. Um, maybe for our viewers that aren't quite as familiar with the company, can you give us the, the basic sort of high-level overview of South State Bank, you know, the key attributes of the company and the story that, that you would want people to know? Yeah, I mean, very high-level, Joe. I, I think of uh, South State today as a small regional bank. We're about $44 billion in assets. Uh, we're located in the southeastern uh, United States and four of the six fastest-growing states uh, in the country. And I think about the people inside South State, and I've heard, I've heard it referred to, folks say they're big bank refugees. A lot of folks started their careers at a big bank, and they kind of missed that entrepreneurialism, and they wanted to start at a smaller bank to see if they could build a better mousetrap. Um, really, the bank is the product today. If you look back at the history, we're a product of a merger of equals that we completed in 2020, right at the start of the pandemic, uh, between... South State Bank based in South Carolina and Center State Bank based in Florida. Uh, Center State was in Florida, Atlanta, Alabama. South State was just to our north in the Carolinas, Virginia. We put that deal together and really that's, that's who we are uh, today. I think about the attributes of the bank. Uh, I think about us being um, a growth oriented bank and, and high growth markets. I think about it being a, a bank based on a very granular uh, deposit base, over a million customers. And I, and I think about it being a credit culture that is largely informed by our history, which was the great financial crisis. So that's kind of a high level overview. Well, that's great. Appreciate that. And you touched on a couple of things there, entrepreneurship and, and of course the center state history. So maybe just sort of rewinding to the beginning of that story, <laughs> I wanted to touch on the formation of Center State Bank, because most people, quite honestly, don't think of bank CEOs as entrepreneurs. <laughs> uh, but from you know a very early point in your career as a banker, you functioned in that entrepreneurial role. And it sounds like you've kind of continued that through South State with how people describe the company today. Can you talk about the formation of Center State Bank You know, 20 plus years ago, the early partnership with Ernie Pinner, kind of how that experience of basically starting a de novo bank sort of helped to shape what came later? Yeah, so every story starts with a person, and, and the story of Center State starts with Ernie Penner, who happened to be a mentor of mine, um, hired me right out of college during the recession in 1989, 1990, and I worked with him for 10 years as my boss. He was a 
regional president for First Union in Central Florida. So I came up under Ernie, and after 10 years, I think it was 1999, uh, I was 30, Ernie was 50 years old. Uh, he had an opportunity to leave a big bank, start a de novo bank with his former mentor, a gentleman by the name of James White, who's now uh, deceased. And, um, and so we took the leap and we started uh, Center State from scratch as a de novo. And back then, Joe, I mean, this is probably hard to imagine. In 1999, you could start a bank with $5 million in capital. So Ernie and I went on the street and we raised, uh, we wound up raising $10 million in capital and really just grassroots from family, from friends, from customers. And we started that, uh, that bank with $10 million of capital, probably about 10 employees. Probably two years into that, we decided to add a, uh, a, a branch, one branch in the next town over. And I remember some of our employees coming to us and go, wait, wait a second. They said, we're getting way too big here. I mean, we left the big bank and uh, now we're branching out and we're getting too big. And so from that, we, we kind of put our, our team together. We went off site and we formed the core values of uh, really the bedrock of who we are today. And there, it's informed by things that we thought were great in a prior life and things we didn't want to do from a prior life. And really, that's that's the um, the foundation of the bank and how we got started and, and really what was important to us. That's great. I think that's the value of sort of the storytelling, John, as people forget or um, don't quite understand how, you know, even at your current size today, you know, the, the strategies and the um, and, and the approach you employ is informed by kind of that is that small de novo startup bank 20 plus years ago as an entrepreneur. That, that's terrific. Um, John, if you remember, there was a whole group of banks around the country that opened their doors in uh, say around 2006. It was sort of the last wave of de novos, right? And when 2008 rolled around, those banks got a lot of credit for being positioned well to take advantage of the crisis. But the reality is most of them were pretty fortunate in that their loan portfolios just hadn't ceased yet, right? And so they went into 08 without sort of that overhang of problems that most other banks were dealing with. Your bank had formed, as you said, about eight years prior to the Great Recession. And you know, while no one could have known in those early years what was to come in Florida in 08, you still managed through 08 to weather the storm as well as or better than virtually any of your Florida base. So in retrospect, what do you think it was about your approach to the business in the years leading up to that, that resulted in your stronger relative positioning as the crisis began to uh, unfold? Well, as I said earlier, a lot of these stories begin with a person, okay? And as I think about the run-up to uh, 2006 and all the froth that was in the market with real estate speculation, I think back to the, our chairman of the board at that time was a gentleman by the name of Jim White. And Jim, Mr. White, I would never call him Jim. Mr. White was Ernie's mentor. And as I said, Mr. White uh, passed away several years ago. But Mr. White uh, was previously the CEO of Flagship Bank based in Miami, which really is SunBank today. It became what is SunTrust in Florida. It was one of the early acquisitions of SunTrust. And Mr. White had, had navigated that bank through the era of inflation, interest rates, and commercial real estate crash that occurred in the early 80s, okay? So we're up at 2005, 2006, and I remember being in loan committee, and normally, 
you have great debates and loan committee, but normally people vote in unison. And I remember there was a land deal that got pitched in loan committee in 2005. And Mr. White uh, didn't say anything during the whole presentation, but then he voted no at the end. And, and, and the rest of the committee voted yes. But buddy, I, I, let me tell you, uh, he was the kind of guy, he was the EF Hutton of the world. We, we talked about that no vote in loan committee for a long, long time. So really what that led to was we didn't really lean in as much into the speculative housing market like a lot of banks did in 04, 05, 06. There was a lot of that going around. So when the, when the crash kind of happened, we found ourselves with less exposure to construction and development, number one. Number two, we were one of the few publicly traded banks in the state of Florida. There really weren't that many publicly traded banks so if anybody was going to do an FDIC roll-up strategy, we had a platform. And because of Mr. White's background, we kind of had excess capital going into the crisis, less construction and development lending. And we had a young team of people and they had something to prove. So you, you put that mixture of, of people together. And that's really where, you know, we uh, we decided to go on offense during the crisis. And you sort of preempted my next question, which was kind of setting the stage for, you know, it is 2008, 2009 timeframe. <clears throat> you weren't completely immune. Like you said, you were a Florida-based bank, but you were in better stead than others. Um, and, and the thing I've admired most about your story over the years is kind of how, you know, I'll call it a defense through offense strategy almost, where, where you sort of turn potentially massive headwinds for the business into an enormous tailwind. So you sort of touched on that a little bit in the final part of your last answer, but maybe just sort of walk us through kind of how that evolved into sort of becoming, you know, you know that, like I said, that defense through offense. How did you sort of fortify the home base through sort of and help to recapitalize the company almost through the FDIC transactions, how that all transpired? Well, the, the, the mindset, Joe, it started out as just pure survival. I mean, there were great <laughs> banks that were very renowned in the state of Florida and they were failing left and right. And you think about the environment, this was a tidal wave that was very hard to outrun. House values had dropped in Florida 50%. Land values had dropped 90%. So it really didn't matter how well you underwrote those loans, you were going to take losses. So really it came down to more concentration. You just couldn't be too concentrated in those, um, those, those, those particular sectors. But you're right. I mean, we, we had a decision to make. Were we just going to hunker down and try to ride it out? Uh, or were we going to get out of the bunker and go on offense? And uh, we had these relative advantages. We were publicly traded. We had access to capital. Um, and, um, and so we took advantage of that. We raised some capital early on to do offensive FDIC deals. Um, and through those FDIC deals, we were able to use the bargain purchase gains to help offset a lot of our own loan losses that we incurred. And, you know, you'd have a gain and you'd charge off some of the bad loans. And we also got in, if you remember, Joe, into the correspondent banking business at a time when everybody was getting out of that business in 08. You remember our friends up in Alabama, uh, John Holcomb and Will uh, Matthews, who's our CFO today, and Richard Murray, who's our president, they ran Alabama National, sold to RBC, and uh, they they kind of turned the correspondent banking business over to us. That really helped raise the sophistication of our team on how to manage a balance sheet um, through a crisis. And you know, at, at the end of the day, 
um, we had something to prove. Ernie had hired us. He took a big risk on us, and we just weren't going to let him down. So, you know, we wound up doing that FDIC thing, which led into, to, um, we did six of those. We did other, uh, you know, troubled banks that were whole bank deals. And then we did very healthy deals. But from that period of time of the great financial crisis to what I'll call the, the COVID crisis, we wound up doing about 25 deals. And uh, within that 25 deals, a lot of them had bought other banks. So really, South State today is a combination of 67 banks that came together between two crisis bookends to take it from whatever it is, 2 billion to 44. Wow, I didn't realize that it was that many. So 67 banks between the two. And it's interesting, you quite brought up the bargain purchase gains, listening to the bank conference calls uh, over the last couple of weeks, it kind of takes me back. You have a whole uh, group of analysts and investors now that are refamiliarizing themselves with the concept of bargain purchase gains and what that could mean. John, this may be too hypothetical to answer with any sort of specificity. I can't say it. Specificity. But you know, looking back, you know, how much did sort of the 08 experience maybe just accelerate a longer-term growth plan that you all already had in place? you know, versus the 2008 experience really altering the plan and setting you on a completely different course than the one you might have otherwise pursued? You know, the, the name of the bank back then, Joe, was Center State Bank. So, you know, we're starting with one office, 10 employees. Our long-term vision was to grow in Central Florida, from like Ocala, Florida, down to Okeechobee. And Ernie and I felt like that was such a monumental hill to climb that if if he and I were able to accomplish that uh, in our careers, that was sort of the vision and thus the name of the bank. And really that that crisis propelled us beyond that. Not, not I mean, it really wasn't a vision to go beyond that. It's just that that's the cards we were dealt uh, because of the crisis. Okay. Okay. No, it makes sense. And while we're on the subject of crisis, you know, unfortunately, obviously today, the bank sector is in the midst of another one, right? Um, <clears throat> You know, I'm of the belief that this crisis is very different from the crisis you're describing and the one we all experienced in 2008. Um, you've had a front row seat to both, obviously, though this time South State Bank is not in the eye of the storm, maybe in the way that Center State Bank was in 2008 in Florida. Do you generally agree with that, John, my assessment that this situation is much different than the last one? And then I'm curious about any other sort of high level thoughts you might be willing to share with us on the current situation today. Yeah, let, let me let me kind of give you one area where it's similar, and then I'll agree with you that there's a number of areas where it's it's different. The the one area where this crisis is similar, you know, has to do with concentration risk. If you go back to the great financial crisis and you looked at the loan books, the left side of the balance sheet, the banks that got in trouble were the banks that were concentrated and speculative real estate development, but it was a concentration issue. If you had a very diversified loan portfolio back then, you could probably navigate through and survive. Where it's similar, this crisis is on the right side of the balance sheet. It's concentration of deposits, uninsured deposits with certain sec sectors and, and, and industries. So in that way, the crisis is, there's a common thread of concentration. It's just different sides of the, of the balance sheet. So that's where it's different, though. It, it is it is deposits versus loans. I, I read in the Wall Street Journal the other day, I thought it was an interesting twist of terminology. The 2008 crisis was known as the 
subprime crisis. In the Wall Street the other day, they said that this crisis will be known as the, not the subprime, but this will be known as the superprime crisis. That the, the banks that are struggling are banking the, the extremely affluent, uh, high net worth venture capital companies. So I thought that was an interesting contrast. But you know, as I as I think about what's gone on in the last three years from a monetary policy standpoint, just like any crime novel, you, you follow the money. Okay. And and what what I've seen to really make it simplistic. Um, is that in response to COVID, the Federal Reserve printed $5 trillion, okay? They went from $4 trillion balance sheet to $9 trillion. Congress passed three stimulus bills, basically helicopter money across America. And if you add up the dollar amount of those three stimulus bills, ironically, it's $5 trillion. Bank deposits. After the crisis in the first year went up, guess how much? Five trillion dollars from from 13 trillion up to 18 trillion. So so if you follow the money, you turn on the printing press, Congress spends the five trillion and it lands on bank balance sheets in deposits. But it doesn't stay there. It goes to two places. Number one, it goes to crypto. If you look at the market cap of crypto, crypto went from zero. It hit a high, I think it was in late 21, of $3 trillion of money flowed into crypto. Why? I mean, I think a lot of folks said, well, gosh, with crypto, at least there's some rules around the money creation. With the Federal Reserve, there, there is no rules. You can you know, get deflated away. So it went into crypto. And then because interest rates were zero and people were looking for return, it went into venture capital and tech startups. OK, so. The, the Federal Reserve, you know, winds up with inflation, but but you know the folks that believed in monetary modern monetary theory thought inflation didn't exist. You could just print your way out of any problem, and then they realized this thing ain't transitory. We're going to have to fix this, and and the rapidness of which they're fixing this, we are unwinding those things that that got stimulated. What are the three things that got stimulated? Number one, crypto. Okay, crypto crashes. And then we have the problems with the banks that were in crypto. And then the startup venture capital tech world starts to have liquidity pulled out. And banks tied to that uh, are, are, are affected. And then finally, just bank deposits in general are getting pulled out of the system. And we saw the money supply um, you know, shrink for the first time ever in American history last year. That's pulling deposits out of, out of all banks. But back to differences. I mean, this is my opinion, Joe. I, I don't think that we're going to see a string of FDIC failures in this crisis like we saw the last one. I saw something recently in the last 20 years. There's been like 560 bank failures since 2001. It's possible that those two failures are maybe it. I think maybe the Fed backstops this, restores confidence. So I don't think we're in for three years of FDIC uh, receiverships like we had in 08. That's um, probably the best framing of the situation, John, that I've heard. And I've been you know, obviously reading and kind of neck deep in this stuff for the last few weeks, but really appreciate that. That's a really interesting way to kind of frame the whole. And if you think about the three banks that failed um, or winding down Silvergate, Silicon Valley and Signature, 
they're kind of in the teeth of the sort of crypto slash tech focus on the funding side that you mentioned, right? But 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 the five trillion went to all banks. So all banks are experiencing this drawdown. It's just it was most acute there. Right. Um, so last question on this for me, John, and you, you kind of preempted it by saying you don't expect there to be a lot of failures, but we've seen a couple of historic transactions here, obviously, in the last few weeks with New York community buying Signature and, and, and now First Citizens acquiring the remnants of Silicon Valley Bank, um, First Citizens being headquartered in some markets that you competed in the Carolinas. You know, these are banks that are significantly larger than South State is today. But let's say let's say you're wrong for a minute, and we and hopefully not. Hopefully you're right, and I think you are. But let's assume here there are more signatures in Silicon Valley's. Um, are, are the considerations for South State to replicate the center state strategy from 08 on a larger scale meaningfully different today? Meaning, you know, would you have the inclination and or the capability or you think other banks your size to just sort of go out and do it all over again? Obviously, though, with much bigger numbers this time than last time. Or is there not the need to do that again, given the position of strength you sit in today and the franchise you have or just the considerations just so vastly different? Well, the deals that have been announced are clearly uh, home run financial trades uh, for first citizens and, and, and for New York communities. So hats off for the creativity on how they put that all together. Uh, I do think it's different this time. I don't think there is the string, the string of failures. But if I'm wrong, I think the, you know, the DNA at, at South State is always to be in a position uh, to be opportunistic. So if I'm wrong and, and some of that stuff came across the transom, we would definitely uh, look. I just think it's unlikely. This this, this fact pattern, um, I think it's much more likely that we're likely to see strategic deals in 2024 and very few deals in 2023. I think we've got to get through uh, whatever recession's coming, uh, whatever credit risk needs to be washed through the banking system, number one, uh, the regulation uh, clarity that needs to come. I mean, you know, I'm... I'm watching TV here in my office today, and they're all up there on, on Capitol Hill testifying and pointing fingers at each other. There's going to be more regulation coming down the pike. You got to figure out, are they going to draw the line at, uh, you know, they moved uh, the 50 billion line to 250. It feels like they're going to bring it back to 100 billion. And I think that will inform the food chain of how banks partner as they think about regulatory um, hurdles that they've, they've got across. Um, and then the whole deal math with um, with uh, AOCI, you know, the, the deal map doesn't look good. So I, I think that will wash its way through as bonds get repriced. So I do look for an active M&A year in 2024. I don't feel like, Joe, that, that, that um, I don't feel like what we built can be replicated. I, I don't think there's the inventory of banks to reproduce what we did. But, uh, you know, in 2024, probably open-minded to whatever strategic opportunities there might be. I think there's going to be a reset of valuations about what's important in a bank. And for the last couple of years, it's been much more about asset growth and less emphasis on granular uh, deposits and the strength of a deposit franchise. I think that's about to, to turn the other way. And I think South State will benefit from a valuation standpoint. Interesting, John. And I, I appreciate that, that take. I definitely agree with you that there's more regulation coming um, we've been busy on risk and compliance searches at Trevelyan for the last 18 months. It's probably going to you know, quadruple over the next two years. So I wanted to pivot to talent. 
that's how I know Center State and South State is was lucky enough to help on some searches. And, you know, it's our bailiwick is, is talent at Trevelyan. So in 2006, Center State was just over $2 billion in assets. Today, South State is $44 billion. I was also astounded to hear it's 67 banks. That's, that's extraordinary. So from a managerial standpoint, thinking about that journey, what have been the most challenging hurdles? Was it finding the necessary talent to scale the organization? Was it venturing outside of your local markets? Was it certain size threshold that for whatever reason presented a particularly difficult challenge? How would you characterize it? Yeah, Brian, the, the biggest challenge for, for me with the growth that we've experienced is how do you make the bank continue to feel small as it gets bigger and bigger, okay? And what I mean by feeling small is that my voice, no matter what my position is in the bank, if I'm in deposit ops or IT or the BSA department or I'm a consumer lender, that, that uh, I matter. And what I contribute to the bank matters. And, uh, and, and this is a place where I can make a difference. And as you grow bigger, uh, if you're not careful, uh, if you're not intentional, you wind up becoming the very same thing that you left because you didn't feel important and you didn't feel valued. So, so that is the big challenge is how do you, how do you have this level of growth, which, you know, a, a lot of this is, is um, driven by regulation and, and just, just what's gone on since these crises. But, but my challenge is how do I, how do I make every person of the bank feel important and that they matter and the bank feels personal and small to them, not impersonal. That's great. And, you know, preserving that culture through all that growth is, is kind of a thing of beauty. Um, even as I remember when we were recruiting for you, John, um, the culture was intact and it was, you know, it, it was a, a well-run organization as it expanded. I wanted to talk about culture. We got an interesting quote on our last webinar from Jay Hildebrand at Stockyards Bank in Louisville. And he was at AOBA, the Acquire Be Acquired conference, where he said something to the effect of bank cultures having been extinguished to some extent, uh, which was the result of, of keeping too many people at home. Hmm. You announced the largest transaction of your career to date, the merger of Center State and South State, just prior to COVID in January 2020, uh, January 2020 and you closed the deal right at kind of the height of the pandemic in June of that year. So as the new South State Bank, you've only operated in a post-COVID world. Integrations are challenging in the best of times. So I'm curious how you adjusted for such a monumental event like COVID. And then how did you think about what sort of culture you wanted to build or reestablish at the new South State, considering the company in its present form didn't exist in a pre-COVID world? Was starting with a blank slate post-COVID an advantage or a handicap? Well, I guess I don't look at it as a as a blank slate. At the end of the day, you're integrating people, and each of the each individual has their own history, their own legacy, and you're combining those legacies uh, together. So it's really it's not like a startup where it truly is on a blank piece of paper. So you are integrating those histories uh, together. But it was incredibly difficult. I mean, um, you know, there is integrating systems, which is one thing. But then there's integrating people. And um, um, 
the way you do that, Brian, is over over lunch, showing pictures of your kids and your vacations and your pets and, and getting to know people. One and none of that happened uh, while we were integrating the MOE during COVID and during work from home. So I think it really prolonged the integration. I, I've heard the terminology in an integration of, of storming, forming, norming, and then performing, okay? Well, you can form something on a piece of paper, and we had done that prior to the, the MOE. We had it all on a PowerPoint. We had it all figured out on the forming part. But the storming is when you're actually integrating policies, procedures, technology, people, reporting lines. Uh, that storming part, because of COVID, probably took longer than any, um, any type of merger that I've been involved with. And it was the biggest, too. So, so that is, stands to reason. But, um, um, you know. Hey, you know, really, I think we announced the merger in January 20th and was it like mid-March when everybody got sent home? So it, it was it was it was a challenge. Um, you know, I, I think with an MOE, a lot of people talk about, um, you know, there, there, there's always a winner and a loser. There's no such thing as a merger of equals. And, you know, having lived through this, you know, that's our job is to make it a win-win for everyone. That, that we can. So um, um, I, I, I think the winner in an MOE needs to be the new company, not either of the old companies. And so um, it was a difficult, difficult process to do it working from home. But I feel like we're finally through the point three years later that we're onto the performing side of that. Terrific. And as you scale the company, I'm curious how you've prioritized the addition of talent. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost uh, opening day using a, a baseball analogy, <clears throat> super team concept. Concept doesn't work in practice as well as you think it might on paper. So in other words, acquiring a superstar oftentimes isn't as good for a team as maybe in baseball prioritizing a situational hitter that knows how to move the runner along. So in banking, how do you prioritize, whether it's in an outright acquisition, an MOE, a de novo market expansion, uh, how do you prioritize just pure talent versus culture, especially when the CEO, the company grows to such an extent that you no longer have the ability to know everything that's happening within the company at a given time? Yeah, I guess I'd start with how do you define talent? And uh, I think some folks define talent as a big resume with a lot of fancy titles working for a big fancy company. and um, and I, I, you know, I don't, I don't view talent that way, and I don't think talent and culture are mutually exclusive things. I mean, I think about how how you prioritize that. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, none of us, none of the three of us, came out of the womb doing what we were doing this morning. Okay, we we grew into it, and and you know, I look at South State as a place where I want people to grow to be the best version of themselves that they could possibly be. And, and the, 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 the most important talent traits that I see in people is humility and hustle. Okay. And, and um, if you can put those two things together, you can grow talent. Okay. It doesn't have to come uh, from a resume. I, I um, one of our directors was head of culture at Chick-fil-A. And, um, and he said, you know, he said, we saw ourselves at Chick-fil-A as a leadership academy masquerading as a chicken restaurant. And I, I would love to think of South State 
as a leadership academy masquerading as a as a bank. Hmm. Oh, I like that analogy there. That's interesting. And um, one thing I will tell you, just to kind of go off script, when I was recruiting, um, you guys always saw the um, initiative in candidates. Sometimes we weren't going after that person. We were going after the one below who had the emerging qualities. You know, in time and again in our searches, we actually hired that candidate for the center state roles. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that actually defined your culture pretty nicely. Yeah, I think I think, uh, you know, everybody's we're all growing together. And so, uh, you know, there's that 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 hustle and that humility matters more to your potential for growth than a, than a title on a resume. John, something you struck me not to go too off script here, but something that you said struck me earlier about you know, how do you sort of stay small, right? The matter. Yeah. And it struck me that that was something I always remember reading about in Bob Wilmer's annual letters at uh, MT. Yep, yep. Arguably, I think, in, in my view, kind of as an observer of the industry for 20 plus years, they did the best job and probably still do the best job at their current size of feeling like a community bank. Is, mm -hmm. is that... Is that someone that or, or company that you kind of look to as sort of a not a model per se, but someone? Would you agree that they've kind of done it the best and maintained yeah. that feeling? I, I've read those shareholder letters that Bob uh, used to run and ran an absolutely fabulous organization. The other organization that's a little closer to home, Joe, uh, would be in Southeast would be BB&T, which I think did it in a very similar kind of way, how they built their business model. And a geographic model, making it feel small, making it feel local. Appreciate that, um, John. I think I think something that's very underappreciated about the consistent operating philosophy employed by banks like like yours is the challenge of of maintaining that discipline um, beyond the ranks of senior management. Right? We haven't had major credit problems, liquidity challenges in the industry for 15 years now, right? Uh, so now you've had almost an entire generation of people in the banking business having never had to experience what that's like. So, you know, how, how do you do it when there's not a cloud in the sky, right? What's the secret sauce sort of communicating and helping the employee base, the lenders, the credit officers, the Alco people, um, team to understand you know, why certain things need to be the way they are. You mentioned Mr. White earlier. The, yeah. in home point mm -hmm. point. Um, it's easy now when wholesale money costs over 5% and there's maybe a recession coming for people to get it, right? But how do you maintain that discipline during the good times, right? And keep the culture and the morale intact where people don't understand why the guy at the top is, is sort of, you know, um, saying the things he's saying. Yeah, good, good question, because when it's go-go time, lenders, and I'm a commercial banker by trade, we want to lend, you know, <laughs> we, we want to lend into the good times. And I think about how you construct the team and how you build diversity in a team. And I think from a lending team, from a credit team, you need a mixture. And I, this terminology, I think, strikes the right chord. You need a mixture in an organization of the Obi-Wan Kenobis, and you need a mixture of the young Jedis. OK, and, and if, if they're all Obi-Wan Kenobis, you're not going anywhere. I mean, it's it's going to be Dr. No. But but if you and if it's all young Jedis, you're going to drive right into the ditch. So I think as far as how you construct a team from a credit uh, administration standpoint or line lenders or market presidents, 
finding that balance. And it gets right back to the mentorship, leadership kind of culture that we're trying to develop. You know, those Obi-Wan Kenobis lived through the 2008 crisis, and those scars are deep. Yeah, John, uh, I love the Star Wars reference. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, I wanted to actually switch gears a little bit and ask you about fintech. Um, from science fiction to fintech here, yeah. Yeah. it's fair to say that South State has not been a company at the very forefront of fintech and tech forward banking. Proven to be a wise decision uh, in light in, of the events of the last few years. What's your res- retrospective take on fintech as it relates to banking? How did that inform the strategy South State pursued with respect to technology? And how do you see that relationship between banking and technology evolving over the next several years? And I was also hoping you could touch on your acquisition of Atlantic Capital Bank, which did include a high-performing payments and BAS division. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of the rationale of the merger of equals was to really upgrade the technology, the digital delivery of our services as you move from bricks to clicks or however you want to call it. And so we kind of, we kind of went throughout the organization and just upgraded all the technology. And Renee Brooks is our chief operating officer. She kind of drives the digital strategy. And I feel like we did a complete overhaul of the technology inside the bank that drives the employee experience and the customer experience. Now, ultimately, we we might've gone too far too fast. If you go too fast with this technology, you wind up serving the technology instead of the technology serving you. So right now, a lot of what we're doing with that technology we employed you build the right processes and the procedures and you customize that software to fit who we are. And that takes time. So we're on the back end of that, that, that period right now. As it relates, that, that's internal technology and digitalization of the business. As far as fintech goes, you know, back to we are a nation of, of uh, free enterprise, entrepreneurs, capitalists. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm proud of our country that we can start all these small businesses, even though they're in the epicenter of the news out in California with some of these bank runs. You know, that's the creative destruction process. And without it, you're not going to come up with these new ideas. So I think at the end of the day, there is there's absolutely a role for great startup fintech companies that are nimble and they can they can be creative and they can deliver a different level of service to a, sec, a sector of customers better than we can as a bank. But ultimately, we've got a funding advantage. So ultimately, I look at the fintech pieces of partnerships along the way. And I, 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 think, I think over the years, banks got lazy and they just, they just allowed all of their technology and innovation to happen at the core processing level. And we spent the last decade disaggregating all of that technology. And with these APIs, allowing the fintech companies to be our new core processing delivery system. So I, I, I think I think there's, I don't think FinTech replaces banking. I think it's a, it's a situation of partnerships, which gets to the Atlantic capital acquisition you were talking about in Atlanta. They had a division or we have a division now of banking as a service of payments. And so again, there, there are aggregators of different clientels around the country that can do it better than we can. But they need our funding. They need our access to the um, the Federal Reserve System. So there's a great partnership there. Uh, we we can serve each other, and they can do things we would never do. We would not want to aggregate some of the stuff that they're aggregating. But because they've done that work and become specialists, we can be be a partner with them. So I don't see that changing, Brian. That's that's terrific. And to your 
earlier point, I, it's, it's refreshing to hear tech being used to deliver the bank internally and externally better. I mean, that's really, that's what you, and, that's, and, you don't see that as much, right? Repeat, that doesn't get the headlines. <laughs> yeah. And, and, the, and the, the thing that we've got that we haven't fully deployed and leveraged, you know, we've got a correspondent banking business that goes back to 08. We've got 1,100 bank clients. And if we can kind of eat our own cooking and kind of, uh, you know, vet some of this stuff, we might be a distribution channel for some of these fintech solutions to that 1,100 banks around the country. Wow. Okay. Let me ask you one last question on talent. And this is near and dear. Um, it's been, you know, our industry is kind of plagued with not maybe getting the next generation of bankers into the mix. So fintech on the one hand has not proven to be the threat to traditional banking that many people had assumed a few years ago. But one thing that it definitely do, did do was attract a different sort of individual into the business, the banking <clears throat> business. How does South State approach this question across the organization, whether it be the next generation of employees, board members, and then also questions around remote work, work-life balance, et cetera, post-COVID? Yeah, back, back to this diversity. And I mentioned the young Jedis and the Obi-Wans. Um, you know, when I when I sit in a room of bank management and executives, I, I ask them, you know, question, how many of you all went through a management associate program when you started your careers? And if you talk to the folks in their 50s and beyond, 90% of them raise their hand. And if you talk to people, you know, 40 and younger, hardly anybody did. I mean, a lot of the banks did away with recruiting these young folks out of college and making banking cool. So that's the one of the nice advantages of scale is that we can do that. And, and, uh, and, and it's, it's a lot of fun for the old guys to be able to be mentors, just like Mr. White was to Ernie and Ernie was to me, that we can be mentors now to this next generation that comes up. So it takes a lot of intentionality, but we're now bringing on around 35 college interns each summer. We're converting about 20 of those into management associates. And in order to, to get the, the, the pipeline growing of the internships, we're doing something now called uh, infoships instead of internships, where we can do introductions to banking for college soft, freshmen, sophomore, juniors, rather than waiting till they're seniors. And we do WebExes like this, and they'll have a WebEx with the chief credit officer explaining what we do in credit administration the head of wealth management explaining what we do there, the head of capital markets and fixed income explaining what we do there, just to drive interest in the banking business. And ultimately that feeds the internship, that feeds the management associate program. And that keeps us young and invigorated and um, you know not stale and old. That's nice to see that you're investing in that. It's that's, you know, the very, uh, our industry depends on that younger generation, you know? So that's, it's good to hear. John, something you said to me a long time ago really uh, did resonate with me, and I, I haven't forgotten it. And I, I say it to a lot of other people now. <laughs> I kind of repeat what you said. Yeah, we were on, I don't know if you remember this, we were on an investor roadshow together. And as analysts normally do, I, I mentioned something to you that in my mind at the time was, uh, in my mind, it was as easy as pressing a button, right? And your response was along the lines of, you know, you have to play the chessboard really as it is, right? And what I took from that was, you don't just get to make decisions that on paper would seem to make a lot of sense, right? There's another party involved. There are social issues. There are other issues to consider. 
And a lot of times the end result is there are things that make all the sense in the world on paper, but they're just never going to happen, right? And the street can get fixated on things like that. And that's something I think is outside observers we, we sometimes forget. So my question is, how do you stack rank the priorities and opportunities in front of you? How do you gauge when maybe if your second M&A priority target or opportunity comes available, but your top priority still maybe has a one third chance of happening. But if you move on number two, it really takes number one out of the picture, right? How do you think about all that when you sort of set the long-term strategic direction of the company and not just necessarily as it relates to M&A, but in all aspects of the business? Yeah, I, I don't remember saying that, but that sounds like something I would have said because <laughs> I do kind of see the landscape. I mean, every decision is like a chess move here. Uh, with ramifications down the road, uh, but that's that's the fun part of the business is trying to figure out, and ultimately it's trying to figure out what other people are are thinking and and what they want and what is a win win in a transaction. You know, I think back, uh, Joe, to the two thousand eight two thousand nine the financial crisis, and um, I was sitting with an investment banker. We were trying to decide. Do we want to go on offense or do we just stay in the bunker and try to get through the financial crisis? And, and he said, he said, John, he said, um, there's going to be so much opportunity if you'll raise offensive capital that with these FDICs, he says, you are going to feel like air traffic control landing planes in LaGuardia. And, uh, and, and, and I'll never forget that analogy because, man, a year or two in, that's exactly what it felt like. You know, these things are going every Friday. And I mean, I think there was one quarter we did like three uh, FDIC deals in a quarter. And it, it was just finding finding the slot. Uh, now, that was kind of hectic back in those days. These days with the uh, whole bank M&A, it's a whole lot more about building a long-term relationship to sort of know you know, uh, what other folks are thinking and, and when is the right time to bring them in the organization. I remember National Commerce. I, I talked about John Holcomb, Will Matthews, and Richard Murray. I, I had a deal, Joe, lined up that was a home run financial trade. And then we found that that uh, Will, Richard, and John were willing to maybe join with us. And, and we pivoted away from the financial trade. And we did the deal with National Commerce, which I think was $4 billion at the time. Best best trade, you know, uh, with a you know great group of people. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll choose the people over the the um, the finances any any day of the week. Gotcha. And just as a side note, you took me back there. Um, I think covering, uh, I wrote more analyst reports on you all, Home Bank, and Bank of the yep. Ozarks than anyone else. It seemed like every every few months there was a, another transaction or something interesting to write about. Yeah, they, they they were in their own air traffic control tower trying to figure out what planes to land. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then I guess looking to the future, John, considering what's happened in the past and how that sort of informs the future direction, setting aside for a moment the current situation in the bank sector, obviously the crisis, uh, whatever you want to call it. What are the things that you can look back on over the past 15 years and say, if we could replicate that, we would do it again in a heartbeat? And what about the past, do you maybe say, you know, that wasn't necessarily a mistake, but it was harder to do than we thought and probably isn't likely to be attempted again. And maybe another way to sort of get at the question is to ask you in retrospect, you know, would John Corbett in 2010 have been completely surprised at where you and the company are in 2023? Or is how you're situated today sort of roughly in line with what that grand vision was back then? 
Well, I'll start with the latter. No, no, we we never. I never anticipated that the company would be the size uh, that it is today. I mean, we, um, you know, part of this is about just being in the game, and some of it's luck and being in the right place at the right time with the right people. But going to your earlier question, um, you know, things that I would do again, and things that we wouldn't do if we had to do it over again. You know. All the decisions through through my career, Joe, come back to to the people I've chosen to partner with, and um, the, the the people that were humble, people that that uh, low ego, that had that hustle, that drive to succeed. Uh, the people that I partnered with there, I, I do it a thousand times over again. Uh, but there's been, you know, in in any career. You may partner with one or two people. You go, you know what? I, that was more about financial than it was strategic in that partnership. And there's places with these FDIC deals for financial, but uh, it takes a long time to recover if you partner with with a, a jerk than you do, you know, with somebody that 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 shares a common set of values. So you know, there's hundreds of people you partner with, and fortunately, I, I've been blessed to partner with a lot of people that uh, I really admire smarter people than me and people that I'd be happy to work for. And as you look at the company today, John, is there a hole that you feel like you still need to fill? Maybe a certain geography, a certain business line that you feel would really sort of better round out or more round out the revenue in the earnings stream, or maybe an attribute that another bank has that, that South State doesn't possess currently? How, how would you answer that? Yeah, and, and I'm going to go back to the people side, which I was talking to Brian about a minute ago. I feel like I'm in the early innings of this leadership academy masquerading as a bank. And uh, we're doing programs like the Remarkable Leader Program, where we're sending about 20 people around the country to companies like uh, Chick-fil-A and Southwest Airlines to, to learn from them and help develop their own self-awareness, their own leadership, develop the business model. I feel like we're in the early innings of that development. And so that's a, that, you know, it's not a geographic hole, but that's a that's a hole that I think if we're going to continue to grow, you've got to have the leadership in place, and we've got we 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 can continue to evolve there. Your people are going to learn a ton about service too, right? Mm -hmm. Treating the, the customer with yep. respect and and getting that repeat business. I mean, Chick Fil A. Every time I go, that's you know that's what I get from them and Southwest mm -hmm. for that matter. So um, great examples of that. Um, so this is a question Joe and I have asked on every webinar um, that we've done. And I think in light of the events of the past month or so, it has the potential to be even more insightful than during normal times. So looking out at over the next six, nine, 12 months, can you maybe point to something where you might have a different view than the current consensus might have on that topic? I know it's a tough question right now, as consensus thought on the, on the current situation is evolving every day, every news cycle, but anything you can think of where you have a different view of how something might turn out relative to what you've heard from others? Yeah, you know, the prevailing consensus that I hear throughout the industry is that you got to be, uh, that bigger is better. Okay, and this may sound odd, you know, coming from the story about how the bank has grown uh, through acquisitions and, and things. And the investment bankers will always tell you that that bigger scale is better. Um, 
you know, sometimes it's better for them. It may not be better for the organization. And that that one day we're going to be just utilities in an arm of the government, that that's where the industry is headed. And I feel like there is a consensus thought process that there's only going to be a handful of huge banks and they're going to be arms of the government. I, I, I don't fall in that consensus camp. I, I believe in that uh, American entrepreneurial spirit. I think there's room for banks that are $100 million and $500 million and a billion dollars that, that serve a unique need. And that I, I don't think you have to be a uh, hundred billion dollar bank to be successful. So I, I don't buy that consensus uh, theory. And, and I think there's enough um, red blooded uh, free market people in America that, that we're not going to be arms of the, um, of the government in our industry. Uh, I think there's an entrepreneurial future for banking. Well, there, there's that word entrepreneurial um, came up several times in this, in this discussion. And my takeaways from today are, you know, two billion or forty-four billion. South State is an entrepreneurial organization. I think you've got a lot of humility. It comes through in talking to you, and it trickles down to every member of your team. Um, I, I just come back to that that statement: feel small as we grow, stay small. Um, that's you know terrific. And every bank out there that's growing, they're all growing, needs to kind of have that same feel. So that's words of wisdom right there. And I just love how you've preserved your culture, um, how you've used technology to enhance internal process. Um, and, you know, you, again, the people you've surrounded yourself with, the talent, if you will. Um, you mentioned right place, right time, right people. You know, there's a little bit of luck, but if you surround yourself with the right people, maybe you don't have to depend on that luck, right? And you're a Star Wars fan, so you earned some points there too. Um, <laughs> George Lucas watches our webinars as well. Um, in any event, <laughs> thank you so, so much for being on, uh, on our webinar today, John. It really was a pleasure, very insightful. And I just wanted to thank you uh, again for being with us today. Thanks, John. Well, it's great, great to spend time with both you guys. And you've been important partners for us over the last 10 and gosh, almost 20 years, Joe. So great to see you guys. Great. All right. Thanks again, John.